Each year, about 15 million students apply to college. All those years of pressure and expectation finally come to a head. What does it take to get into a good college? You need a high GPA above 4.0 with AP courses to be included. Speaking of, you need high AP test scores, not to mention a high SAT score. And then to round yourself out, you need plenty of extracurriculars. All of this takes a lot of time and effort. I remember so much of what I did in high school was just geared toward getting into a college. But you have to strive because college admissions are based on merit. Now, I know these days a lot of identity politics has taken over college admissions, which are quite sad, but at least it used to be the case that to get into the most prestigious universities, you had to have a lot of educational merit. Are you smart enough? Are your your test scores high enough? Eventually, you send out all those applications, and you hope that your merits are enough to gain you admission. Now, I bring this up because this is how many religious people think salvation works. They believe that admission into the kingdom of heaven is based on merit. Even many Protestants who are supposed to know better functionally live as if They need to earn a place, earn acceptance before God. They strive, they give their lives over to religious performance. And so much of what they do here below is done to increase their chances of getting in. It'll look good on a resume before God, right? But such people are sadly in for quite a shock. You can just picture like the perfect high school student. She did everything right. She had the best grades, a perfect SAT score, all the extracurriculars, But then she gets rejected from every single college she applied to. Even community colleges reject her. It's too late to reapply. You can just imagine the shock she would feel, the the horror. It's It's not supposed to happen. Now, that would not happen because even still, college admission is somewhat still based on merit. But salvation is not at all. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with our merits. And those who mistakenly think so... They're going to experience quite a shock on the last day when they learn the hard way that they didn't make the cut. They will stand rejected, and it will be too late to reapply. It's important for us to consider the sobering reality so that we are not among those who are shocked on the last day. And that's something our passage this morning helps us do, because we're presented with a picture of those who will be shocked and rejected, along with those who will be saved. That picture comes in Matthew chapter 9, so open your Bibles with me to Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. During his earthly ministry, the religious elite came around to investigate Jesus, wondering, could he really be the Messiah? And these were the people who were striving the most to enter the kingdom. They were putting, putting together all the merit. They, would, they were determined to have perfect test scores. God would have to let them in. When they find Jesus, they've heard all the rumors. They're intrigued. But there's one problem. that Jesus does not recognize them. He shows these religious leaders no favor, no special treatment, no honor. He does not recognize their authority. He's not impressed by their religiosity. It's like he doesn't even care about their merit at all. How could this be? This is not right. Does, does Jesus not know who they are? You know, in the end, these religious leaders completely turn on Jesus and reject him as the Messiah. 
Yeah, he might be like giving sight to the blind and raising the dead, but I mean, if he does not recognize them, they will not recognize him. I mean, how could the Messiah not validate their merits? That's how settled they were in their self-righteousness. And sadly, though, that in rejecting Jesus, they were locking themselves out of the only entrance into the kingdom. And by clinging to their self-righteousness, they give us a sad preview of the rejection many will face on the last day when they learn that their efforts did not earn them admission into the kingdom. Jesus tried to warn them. He tried to set them straight. The way of righteousness, or should we say self-righteousness, is not the way into the kingdom. Rather, what does Jesus say? What will we hear him say in our passage today? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. There's a warning in that statement, namely that the self-righteous have no part in him. He did not come for them, which means they're still lost and without hope. But there's good news in this declaration. Who did Jesus come to save? Not the righteous, but sinners. He came for those who have no merits. They have nothing to offer. They, all they have to offer God is their sin, their debt, their guilt. In reality, that's everyone, but only the meek and the humble acknowledge this. Jesus tells everyone to follow me, but only the poor in spirit will come to him naked, empty, clinging only to his cross. The only thing they can offer God are are Christ's merits, which he earned on that cross, which we gain by faith in him. To such people, sinners, all of them, the gates of the kingdom open wide. And that is good news, that even the, the worst, most vile sinner you can think of can be washed and forgiven and redeemed by this Savior. That's why he came, and that's some of the hope we get this morning from this passage. Matthew chapters 8 and 9 records many miracles of Jesus. They're interrupted by these two little interludes teaching on discipleship. We're in the second interlude, starting here in Matthew 9, 9. It's basically answering the question, who can follow Jesus? Who can be a disciple? If Jesus had a school, to whom would he grant admission? You might think like, well, the most righteous, the most religious, the least worldly, the least sinful. But it's actually just the opposite. He only admits sinners. Otherwise, he'd have no students. But his school is open to any sinner who repents. He came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That universal call goes out to all. And no one who comes in an earnest, repentant faith will be turned away. We see this played out in our text first by the example of Matthew himself as he records his own call and conversion to Christ as a reviled tax collector. And second, we see this played out in the rebuke of the Pharisees as they self-righteously react to Jesus eating with sinners. And this gives the Lord the occasion to respond, both putting them in their place and revealing the true purpose of his coming. It's like Jesus, it's kind of like he's revealing his admission process, so to speak. Who can be his disciple? Who are the called? And we're going to find out. And for the sake of time, we'll read as we go, because surprisingly, there's a lot to cover in these verses. But this text breaks up into two parts. And so we'll start with this. First, the call of Matthew. 
verse 9, the call of Matthew. Look at Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. This episode takes place right after Jesus healed the paralytic, previous passage, most likely in Peter's home. After that, Mark 2.13 says that he went down by the seashore and continued teaching the people. And somewhere in that time, Jesus encountered this man in a tax booth, Matthew. And this is the first time we're introduced to Matthew, who you probably know would become one of the 12 disciples, later turning into the 12 apostles who formed the foundation of the church. And given the significance of the 12, it's not surprising to learn that Jesus chose them in a special way. He says often, John 6, 70, he says to them, did not I myself choose you? Or John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you, he says to them. This was a special call, and for this reason, it's safe to read into verse 9 where it says Jesus saw a man called Matthew. This was not a passing glance. This was not a chance encounter. This was a divine appointment. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Matthew was chosen. It's time for Matthew to be called. And keep in mind, Matthew did nothing to merit such a call. Nothing. He's not special. He certainly wasn't righteous. In fact, of, of all the 12 disciples, Matthew appears to be the, the most unworthy humanly speaking, to follow Jesus, because he comes as this despised tax collector. And I want to explain that. Verse 9, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. Probably doesn't mean a lot to you, but to feel the force of this call, you need to learn a little bit about the ancient tax collector. And Jewish scholars like Alfred Edersheim and others, they help us get acquainted with the tax collector based on ancient historical records from the time. You probably know at the time the Jews were living under Roman occupation, which meant they had to pay taxes to Rome. But the Romans outsourced their tax collection in the provinces to locals. It's kind of like opening up a franchise. Tax collectors were like franchisees, and they, brought the, they bought the rights to collect taxes for Rome. And they would give a fixed amount to Rome, and then everything they collected on top of that was theirs. Now, do you think such a system would breed like, corruption or greed? Yeah, tax collectors are known as the publicani, or publicans, sometimes you see transliterated. They were kind of like a mafia. They were backed by the Roman military, and they were essentially committing legal extortion. They would levy burdensome taxes on the people. I mean, the Romans didn't care. They filled their own pockets, and the people did not have much choice, but but to pay. The Jews had a couple of annual taxes they had to pay to Rome, a head tax, like a poll tax, just for existing, and then a land tax, if you're a property owner. But then they had all these indirect taxes, like we still have, sales tax, custom duties, tolls. And this is where tax collectors made their money. They would set up shop at city gates, ports, busy intersections, and then they would levy taxes on all the goods that passed through. Matthew lives in Capernaum. It's a busy port city. His tax booth may have been on what was known as the Via Maris. It's a major trade route back then, or it could have been right on the lake, collecting tax on all the goods that came in from the sea. 
the Romans gave this class of tax collectors basically autonomy to assess the value of goods being taxed. And that hugely gave way to corruption and greed and really dishonesty. It it got ridiculous. If you were transporting goods, you could be taxed on your donkeys, on the wagon, on each axle, on each wheel, not to mention the goods themselves. You can just imagine the sour reputation these tax collectors had. It's like they were committing legal robbery. Everyone knew it. No one could stop it. Now, for the Jews... It's even worse because on top of all this, politically, they were seen as traitors. I mean, they worked for Rome, the evil empire. They're essentially enforcing Roman occupation. That's one thing for a Roman soldier. They're Romans. Remember, these tax collectors were locals. These were fellow Jews. How could a Jew betray his people like this and serve Rome as a tax collector? And given how the Jews felt about Gentiles, it also meant that these tax collectors were religiously rejected because they associated with the Romans, because they handled pagan coins that passed through the hands of Gentiles, they were perpetually unclean. They're always unclean. Therefore, they were rejected from all religious life. They were barred from attending synagogue. They could not give testimony in a Jewish court. They were put on the same level as unclean animals, like swine. So you put all this together, and you can see why the Jews especially despised tax collectors. We kind of go into all this background because you need to kind of feel the hatred, the disgust people would have had for Matthew in that tax booth. He's not one of us. He's, he's a Jew, but he's not one of us. Let me put it this way. How do you feel about sex traffickers? Are you repulsed? Yes, you despise them. You have no sympathy for them. They'll get what they deserve, and you're fine with that. That seems to be how most Jews felt about the tax collector. All this means is that Matthew is the last person they would have expected Jesus to call. And look, if Jesus was calling people based on merits, yeah, Matthew should be last in line. But he calls by grace. He calls sinners that he might transform them. And so who better to call than Matthew, that God might extract greater glory in transforming him and being transformed? You can guess, Matthew's not going to remain a tax collector much longer. Verse 9, it says, Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And here's that familiar call to discipleship, the same one Jesus issued to that those wavering would-be disciples back in chapter 8, verse 22, the, the first interlude on discipleship. When Jesus calls, it's immediate, it's urgent, it's critical. It's also ongoing, this command, follow me, a present active participle, meaning follow and keep following. You, you don't stop when you start. We never got to hear how those would-be disciples responded back in chapter 8 when Jesus said, follow me. But we do hear how Matthew responds, it's with immediate obedience. It says he got up and followed him. Now, what do we make of Matthew's instant obedience? This, this whole passage, he, he records his call in just one verse. That's it. It's very modest. We'll see more about 
that later. But this whole interaction seems so abrupt. Like, what's going on? Is Jesus, like, putting some kind of divine trance on Matthew? He just gets up and starts following. He's never seen this guy before. No, there has to be more going on here. Now, I would safely bet that Jesus and Matthew are not strangers. Like We know Matthew lived in Capernaum. Jesus made that his new home base. He's performing miracles, teaching, working wonders. He's a local celebrity. Everyone in that city knows at least who Jesus is, what he's doing and saying. So Matthew had to have at least known of Jesus. Whether he saw him, heard him, we don't know. But he had to have known of Jesus. And furthermore, if Matthew's tax booth was on the lake, Mark says they went by the seashore, then Jesus and his disciples had to have interacted with Matthew before. It's not like there were a million tax collectors. I wonder, like, did Matthew levy taxes on the fishing enterprise of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, which were based right there in Capernaum? I'd be more surprised if they didn't know Matthew, the tax man. But when Matthew encounters Jesus that day, something was stirring within him, namely guilt. How can we say this? Well, just look at the context. Right after this, we'll we'll look at shortly, but what does Matthew do? He invites his friends over, all these fellow sinners and tax collectors. But like a jubilant new convert, he's excited to bring his friends to Jesus. And this draws the complaint of the religious leaders. If Jesus is a respected teacher, how could he associate with sinners? And to this, Jesus responds, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, do you think Matthew would have recorded this in conjunction with his conversion if he was not identifying himself with the sinners, with those who need the great physician? Matthew knew his sin and his guilt before God. He knew all the wicked things he had done. He knew he was unworthy. Before the religious leaders of his day, Matthew had no hope. I mean, he was shunned, he was written off, admission into the kingdom is based on merit. And so like sinners like Matthew need not even apply. You're already consigned to hell, there's nothing you can do. But now Jesus comes, he's different, he speaks different, he teaches different, he's working wonders, could he be the Messiah? But even still, Matthew, I wonder if he reasons, like there's no way someone so righteous You know, this teacher sent from God. There's no way he could accept a sinner like me. Tax collector? I mean, if the other rabbis and scribes treated Matthew like the scum of the earth, how could it be any different from Jesus? He's he's more righteous than they are. How could he accept him? Matthew had all this money, but we get the impression he would trade it all if someone could just lift this heavy millstone of guilt off his shoulders. But then this one afternoon, he sees Jesus approaching his tax booth, and Jesus merely utters two simple words, but I imagine they came with with conviction and with hope, follow me. And I believe Matthew at once knew, without a doubt, here is one who can lift my burden. He's righteous, but he's merciful, and in that mercy, he's calling me. He's calling me to repent. He's calling me to believe. He's calling me to follow him. 
in response in faith, Matthew jumped up and followed him. And I, I tell you, I bet he never felt so light that his burden was finally lifted. Like, I know we're taking some liberty, musing into the heart of Matthew's response here, but how else do you explain his response? It goes further as Luke chapter 5, verse 28, the parallel account, adds one little detail that Matthew leaves out, where he is very modest, that namely, Matthew left everything behind when he followed him. Luke says he left everything behind, his tax booth, his franchise, his wealth. There's no turning back. For the other disciples, when they followed Jesus, they left much, but if, if following Jesus didn't work out, they could always go back to fishing because they still kept their boats, but not Matthew. He's giving it all up. There's no turning back at this point. This is a one-way ticket. You can imagine like an A-list actor who has all the fame and the fortune, the awards, then he realizes one day that the wickedness of his industry, so he turns his back on Hollywood, he walks away. At that point, you know, like it's over for him. There's no coming back. He'll be blacklisted. They won't take him back. And so it was for Matthew. But no matter, as Paul said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. Matthew was happy to give it all up. He's not moaning and complaining that he has to leave it all behind. He's happy to walk away. He's found the pearl of great price. It's worth it all to acquire him. And this is what Jesus came to do, to save sinners, to, to lift the soul-crushing burden of, of sin that's tied around their necks, threatening any moment to sink them to hell. It's like Jesus will say a little bit later in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the call of Matthew, and it's just one verse, but it's especially instructive in answering a big question on discipleship, namely, who does Jesus accept as his disciples? Who can apply? And the answer is sinners. But what kind of sinners? If you remember in the previous passage, Jesus heals the paralytic, but before he healed him, he declared his sins forgiven. And we learn in Matthew, like, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. But we're still left wondering, like, what kind of sins? How, how much? How big? kind of sinner can you accept? Because there's some bad ones. Well, in God's providence, Matthew's conversion comes next, almost as if to answer the question. And the answer is any kind. Like that there's no limit. Even the most vile, wicked, depraved sinner can be washed and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus came to save sinners he did so by taking their sin and their shame upon his shoulders, which he bore on the cross. He paid their debt on the cross in full, leaving nothing left. And then he rose on the third day, where he can now stand offering forgiveness of sins and new life to those who come to him. And that is the call of Jesus unto salvation. That call still goes out today as often as the gospel is preached and as you hear it this morning, what should you do? 
especially if you are here like Matthew, where you know your sin, you feel the weight of your guilt. You're unsure if God could accept a sinner like you. The answer is, he cannot. On your own, he can't. Like you, you are not worthy. You, me, we are not good enough. Our sins weigh us down. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not even one. We don't have the credit, and we never will. But Christ is worthy. He's perfectly righteous. And if he can stand in your place, God can accept you. He will accept you. And we gain Christ by faith. This is the only way. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but rise up like Matthew and, and follow him. Do so immediately. You don't delay. You don't wait until tomorrow. Today is always the day of salvation. You might not have a tomorrow. And do so decisively where you're willing to turn away from whatever you need to. That certainly includes sin via repentance, but also any encumbrance that hinders you from pursuing the Savior. Rise up. Follow Jesus today. And can I say a word to, to all those here who, who have been following Jesus for years, many decades even? You know, if you think back in your early days, you were probably full of passion. You were ready to forsake it all, to follow Jesus. You were happy to cut out whatever you needed to cut out in life to pursue him. You're like a runner starting the race and you burst out of the gates with energy and excitement like you're going to have record time. But then the, the race drags on, it's hot, you encounter various trials, you start slowing down. It gets hard, you don't mind a little escape. In time you find yourself getting re-entangled in the things of the world. Take a little break at Vanity Fair, you slow down. But I would exhort you here who are not new disciples that your, your pursuit of Christ should be just as vigorous as it was at the first. You need to remember what he did for you. You need to think back that he lifted your burden. He saved you. And let that remind you and then renew you to love him daily. Because it is that love for Christ that fuels our ongoing obedience and discipleship. And so be renewed. Jesus came to save sinners. That was you. That was me. Let us never forget that. And so first we see this lesson in the call of Matthew. And now as the text progresses, we hear this lesson from the Lord himself. So secondly, the called of Jesus. The call of Matthew. Secondly, the called of Jesus. Matthew really does show his humility as he knows that even his own conversion story is not about him. It's about the Lord. So he just quickly moves on to what happens next because it gives rise for Jesus to show who are the called. So verse 10, it says, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 10, it's an abrupt scene jump. Where we're taken to this house. We're like, what, what house is this? Well, this is Matthew's house. It's clear from the context. It's affirmed in Luke 5.29, who says outright, And Levi gave a big reception for him 
in his house. Levi, Matthew, same person. Matthew is modest, and he's really not trying to draw attention to himself. But Luke tells it how it is. Matthew was rich. He had a big house. It was large enough to host what Luke calls a great crowd. And there he hosted this great feast. This was an ancient Near East celebration, a big table loaded with food and drink, surrounded by cushions, because today we sit at a table. Back then they reclined at a table. But what matters most is the guest list for this feast, namely tax collectors and sinners. Translation, Matthew's only friends, right? He's shunned by most of society. He's not inviting the elite. They will not show up. These are his people. These are his only people. But he's got his fellow tax collectors there, however many there were in the town and the region. They're there. He also is joined by, it says, other sinners, It's a Greek word derived from just sin. It's how the Jews spoke of pagans and heathens, as well as fellow Jews who were impious, irreligious, and living in sin. They're sinners. The term was used of thieves, crooks, prostitutes, murderers, the sexually immoral. You get the picture. The list goes on. Why is Matthew hosting a banquet with such people? Is this a celebration? Yes, of sorts. Remember, Matthew just left his tax booth, and that life is over. He's gone. But he still invites his old associates, his tax-collecting friends. He's not shunned them, but he has changed. So why is he inviting them? Why else but to introduce them to Jesus? This is one of the first fruits of genuine conversion. You're going to find a strong desire, unexplainable desire just to tell others what the Lord has done for you, to share with them your excitement. You found the one who can lift your burden, who gave you forgiveness and new life. You just, you want to tell them. It's worthwhile, I think, to pause here and ask, do you seek to bring your friends to Jesus? Think of all the associates you have in life. Do you want them to know the joy of salvation? Like, do you really? And so what are you doing about it? Do you invite them to church? That's, that's fine. I mean, they will hear the word of God. But there are many people who will never come to a church. You, meanwhile, you're their friend. Like, you share the gospel with them. You have them over for a meal. That's your primary mission field. You, need, you don't need to worry about going overseas. Just start with that. And so what are you doing to introduce your friends to Jesus? Matthew decided, I'm going to host a banquet. It was not without controversy, though, verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, here again, we meet the Pharisees. They're just starting to investigate in earnest the ministry of Jesus. They're checking him out. They've heard all the stories and the rumors, trying to see what he's all about. So far, they do not like what they see because Jesus has no regard for their traditions. He doesn't recognize their authority, yet he's extremely popular. He's telling people like their sins are forgiven. Like Who does he think he is? And now this, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees were not at this banquet. 
They were not invited to this banquet. If they were, they would never step foot in Matthew's house. But they know what's going on, and perhaps at the end of the evening, they show up to interrogate. You notice at the end of verse 11, or rather just in verse 11, they direct their question not to Jesus, but to his disciples. They're cornering his disciples, wanting an explanation of, of what's going on. But you can tell they're their questioning is rhetorical, it's insincere. They're not asking a question, they're simply passing judgment. They call Jesus a teacher. He is recognized as a rabbi. But it is disreputable and outright scandalous for a teacher like this back then to share a table with a sinner. You can't associate with the sinner. I mean, if Jesus really is a man of God, even a man from God, how can this be? And again, you have to feel the scandal of this from, from their perspective. In your eyes, I don't know, maybe this tax collector still seems like a somewhat respectable form of employment. But in their eyes, not at all. And let me translate this today for the appropriate shock value. Just, just think of a Vegas brothel with all the women and managers who work there, if you know what I mean. Would you call that respectable employment? No. And now just imagine, one of them gets converted, throws a banquet, invites everyone from the brothel to the banquet, they show up, and then Jesus and his disciples show up. That would be shocking, right? How could, how could Jesus like, associate with those people? That is the shock value here. Realize later on, and for the rest of his ministry, Jesus gets slandered for this move. Matthew eleven nineteen. We'll see later, what does Jesus say? He, he repeats that slander in Matthew eleven nineteen. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That slander gets repeated. It started here with Matthew's banquet. He was guilty by association. Now, maybe part of you, though, is wondering the same thing. How can Jesus associate with such people? How can he share a table with sinners? Like, doesn't he know what they do? What do we make of this? Well, maybe we just let Jesus speak for himself because he does. Though the Pharisees interrogate Christ's disciples, the master shows up to put them in their place. He answers, and he he responds with three poignant one-liners, and they just These three statements, they perfectly capture his mission, his purpose for coming, and in so doing, they reveal the nature of the called. Who are the called? Let's look at these statements one by one. Verse 12, the first one. He says, or rather it says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now that's obvious. This is a self-evident truth. Sick people need doctors, not the healthy. Now, the problem is you're thinking about this from the perspective of the sick person. When you're sick, what do you do? Like really sick, you're going to run to a hospital where doctors will treat you. But you've got to realize hospitals are fairly recent in human history. Most history, there's no hospital. You're sick. You call for a doctor. Doctor comes to you, makes a house call. So now think about this from the perspective of the physician. You're a doctor. You know out there are a lot of sick people who need you. 
So where should you be found? Answer, like among the sick. What good is a doctor if he's only ever around healthy people? And so now you can see the simple point Jesus was making. He is the great physician of souls. He came to heal people, to raise the spiritual dead to new life. And so, like, where should he be found? Answer, like, among the sick. You know, the lost, the depraved, sinners. You know, all those people who need a savior. That would certainly include tax collectors and sinners. In saying this, Jesus is not insinuating that the Pharisees were healthy, truly healthy, as if, you know, they're good, they have no need of a Savior. No, they're just as sick. Worse, they're self-deluded, thinking they're healthy. But they want nothing to do with the great physician. That's on them. Now, I think this is a good place, though, to briefly address the question, should we do this? Should Christians associate with sinners like this, Like, is this, okay, is this how we reach the lost? We should go to bars, we should go to casinos, we should enter their world to reach them. This question always comes up from this passage. And you should know we are not called to disassociate from sinners in the world. Something 1 Corinthians 5.10 attests, we would have to go out of the world to disassociate from all sinners. That's never the mission or the uh, the calling. The, The mission of Christ took him not to a monastery, but to the world to sinners, and so it should be for us. We must go out into the world amongst fellow sinners, but as is often said, we are to be in the world, not of the world. We are to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Now, Christ's example here has been quite abused by compromised Christians. They would say, you know, Jesus, I mean, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. So can I. But for them, it's merely a a license to indulge in drunkenness and whatever other sin under this faint guise to reach the lost. It's just a thinly veiled excuse to gratify the flesh. And you should know that that doesn't fly. If we find ourselves associating with sinners, great. But we must keep ourselves unstained by sin. Just keep in mind, Jesus did not engage in drunkenness or any of the sins that those people were doing as he interacted with the lost. And you have to remember, Christ's interaction with sinners like this had a purpose. The purpose was not just to have a good time. Because in the end, there's no fellowship with light and darkness. We don't go there for fellowship, for our soul's delight. We go there for mission. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. He was going to reach them, to see them transformed. He is not content with sinners remaining in their sin, And one point that always has to be made in this discussion is that when Jesus interacted with tax collectors and prostitutes, they did not remain tax collectors and prostitutes. They repented, believed, and became disciples. And that's actually true here in the parallel account in Mark 2.15. Mark says Matthew was not the only one believing. Rather, Mark says of all the banquet guests, he says that they were following him. Jesus. So it turns out he made them all into disciples. Suffice it to say, we're called to walk in the light and not love the things of the world. And so if you must enter a dark domain to reach the lost, very well. Keep yourself unstained by evil. Do not put a basket over your light. I'll tell you what, if you just keep free from sin, 
and are committed to preach repentance, like Jesus did, you associate with whoever you want. If you don't compromise that, I think you'll be saved. Now, we need to get into the second statement. Number two, coming in verse 13, he goes on. He says to them, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Here in the second statement, Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 for support. He's not acting out of line. He is acting right in line with the heart of God from the Old Testament. The Pharisees were the ones who were out of line. They were repeating the same sins as Israel. Hosea the prophet was sent to rebuke the false formal religion of Israel at the day. The people then were, they were going through the motions of God's law, but their hearts were far from him. They were living in immorality and wickedness, but they thought all was well because I mean, they brought their sacrifices. They're good to go. Like the scribes and Pharisees, they fastidiously kept the rituals and traditions, but their hearts were far from him. And the true love of God was not found within. And therefore, as God said through Hosea, like their sacrifices were meaningless. Even worse, God says, I hate them. He hated their sacrifices and rituals the way they were doing it. They were loathsome in his sight because the smell that came was the, the foul stench of hypocrisy, which repulses him. Now, yeah, obviously, these sacrifices were their prescribed outward form of worship. And when coming from a heart of love for God, they were pleasing to God for them under the old covenant. But if the heart was not in it, they were repulsive to God. And likewise, the Pharisees had fallen into the same dead ritualism of man's religion. They believed that they were right with God, but it could not be further from the truth. God wants his people to love him first and foremost. And do you know one of the surest signs that you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? It's not that you perform sacrifices and rituals. It's that you love others with all your heart. When you've been humbled under God's hand by your own sin, when you have found God's mercy, that will by nature produce a love in you for others whereby you are willing to extend to them the same mercy, the same compassion that you received. Like, how can you not? You, you know, you're not better than them. You've merely received mercy. How can you not give mercy? So go and learn this, Jesus says to the Pharisees. That phrase, go and learn, that's a rebuke. That was used in rabbinic writings as a rebuke for someone who did not know what they ought to have known. They claim to be experts in the law and the knowledge of Scripture. They don't even know what it means. And Christ is saying, like, go and, go and learn what this really means. They call Jesus a teacher. He, this is him taking them to school. But I pray we may take this to heart. Let us learn what God still wants of us, that same heart of mercy and compassion for the lost. Let this second statement remind you to not lose your heart of mercy and compassion for the lost. Listen, especially Christians who've been here, been in the Lord for a long time, the longer it has been since your conversion, the easier it is to judge others as sinners. That's because the longer it goes on, or the longer you live as a Christian, you start forgetting where you came from. Your behavior now, it's all sanitized. 
It's been a long time since you were steeped in sin. But just remember, like, you used to be. You used to be in it. Just like everyone else in the world used to say those things, used to do those things. But, like, that was a long time ago. You're not like that anymore. But somewhere along the line, maybe you forgot what you were like, what the Lord saved you out of. And you stopped seeing yourself as a sinner. You started seeing only others as sinners. And then it's, it's easy to, to thumb your nose at them or scoff at them. Like, look how unworthy. Look what they're doing. I can't believe that. But you, you must guard against such hypocrisy by remembering who you were, what you used to do, like how bad you were. And just think about this. Where would you be today if the Lord did not intervene? Like, just imagine, what if he didn't call you? What would your life be like now? I think about that from time to time. I'm convinced my life would be a miserable train wreck. But you have to recall, like, what did the Lord do for you? And don't forget it. Are you better today? Are you holier? I certainly hope so. But you also have to remember why it's merely the grace of God. And this is why we never boast but this is also why we, we must not withhold mercy from others, even other great sinners. We are merely those who've received mercy. And apart from that mercy, we would be doing the exact same things. We must never lose that heart of mercy for those who are still trapped in their sins. Don't forget for, from where you came. Now we need to finish up. So let's cover this third statement, the last that sums it up. End of verse 13. He says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here we have it. Who are the called of Jesus? It's not the righteous. It's sinners. He came to call sinners. Same term used of Matthew's dinner guests. Jesus never said that the people in question were anything but sinners. Like, no, they, were, they were certainly sinners, but that's kind of the whole point. This is why he came. Specifically, Jesus says he came to call them. The call here refers to the general, universal call. It's the call to salvation, the call to discipleship. There is a special call that goes out, an effectual call. It's a work of the Spirit that imparts new life to the dead sinner, enabling them to respond with faith. Like Acts 16, 14 says of Lydia, that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. Or like Jesus will say in Matthew twenty two fourteen. Many are called, but few are chosen. And so we'll trust God to do his work of regeneration in the effectual call. But also know he passed down to us, to his disciples, this work of the general call, the gospel call. And that call goes out to all the nations, calling all sinners, whoever's sick, whoever is in sin. It's not for the righteous, because there are none righteous. In reality, Jesus means the self-righteous, those who trust and their own merits before God. They've effectively plugged their ears to the gospel call. But there are still many out there who they know their sin all too well. They're out there, like Matthew, weighed down with this burden of their guilt. They know what they've done, and there's no hope. They look around, there's no hope elsewhere. And these are the ones Jesus came to call, as should we. This is a call to faith. It's also a call to repentance, you can't separate the two. You must stop following, cherishing your sin in order to start following Jesus. 
In fact, in the parallel, once again, Luke 5.32, we get the longer version where Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the sinner. Like, of course, this is a call to repentance. Matthew thinks that's obvious. God hates sin. So you think he sent his son to die for you that you can now just live in your sin with a clear conscience? Now, this is a call to repent, to follow. I'll tell you what, though. When one sinner repents, heaven rejoices. Literally, that's what Jesus said in Luke 15. There's another occasion, very similar. You had a group of tax collectors and sinners. They came to Jesus to hear from him. He ate with them. Then you have another group of scribes and Pharisees, and what happens? They're likewise outraged. Jesus is again eating with tax collectors and sinners. And that time, in response, he tells a parable, Luke 15. It's the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. You know what that's actually about? That's a rebuke. Here's the punchline, Luke 15, verse 7. And Christ says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know, Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And don't you think this was part of that joy, the joy of seeing lost sinners come to repent? And he, the only way that could happen is if he did something about their, their, their guilt, their sin. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he bore the wrath of God and rose from the dead, that he might see the joy of his brethren repenting, believing, following him. Jesus came to save sinners. He's still in that business. We have to conclude by looking at this account. So leave Matthew. Go to Luke chapter 18. This is a huge theme in Luke. Luke 18. You know, you speak of the tax collector and the Pharisee and really, from here on in the Gospels, these almost become archetypes of the called and the rejected. Who is the person like who is called? It's like that tax collector. Who is the person like who is rejected? It's like that Pharisee. There are exceptions. Some Pharisees humbled themselves and were saved, Nicodemus. Some tax collectors did not repent and believe. But, but notice this, this archetype that forms between the called and and the rejected, the tax collector, the Pharisee. You know this passage well. We're just going to read it. Luke 18, 9 through 14. But listen along. Luke 18, verse 9. It says, He, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like this, like other people, like swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. This speaks for itself. What, what do we need to say? All people are 
sinners, but only those who confess their sin before God and cry out for mercy will find it. But the good news is they will all find it. The gate's open. Remember how the Beatitudes charted the course into the narrow gate. It's for those who are poor in spirit, broken, meek, humble, mourning over their sins. And the Lord has instructed his gatekeeper to turn none away who come with that humble, meek, repentant faith. And I pray that's you. Because it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's 1 Timothy 1.15. It's a trustworthy statement for us to never forget. It's a trustworthy statement we need to recall daily. It's a trustworthy statement we need to now take into the world. And you don't have to be a great preacher behind a pulpit to do so. There are many ways. And if we can finish here, let's consider Matthew's example once more. It's likely that at his conversion, Jesus renamed Levi to Matthew. Levi is his first name. Matthew appears to be his new name. It means the gift of Yahweh. And Matthew would be a gift of God to the church. You know, of the 12 disciples, three of them are known as the silent disciples because in all of Scripture, we never hear a single word from them. They never are recorded as saying anything. James the Less, Simon the Zealot, and Matthew. We never hear Matthew say anything ever. He's silent, but he appears happy to serve in the background. He knows it's all about the Lord. But also consider this. We get to read Matthew's words a lot as he takes it upon himself to relate the words and the works of Jesus. I mean, don't forget the book you're holding in your hand. One of these books was written by Matthew. I mean, of all the disciples, the Lord chose Matthew, this tax collector, to record his special testimony to the church forever. And that testimony would impact the world throughout the ages. Matthew, you could say, he's still bringing friends to Jesus. You know, for most people, the first impression they get of Jesus comes from Matthew. Because Matthew's the first gospel. They pick up the Bible to read. They start in the New Testament. The first taste they get of the Lord comes from Matthew. He has shaped the faith of millions. And that is all because he knew it was a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is his testimony of that. And now it's, now it's your turn, whether you preach or write or simply invite someone over for dinner. And now it's time for you to add your own testimony that you know all too well, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. And let us share that testimony now with the world. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we, we do add our name to that list, the list of sinners of whom you sent your son to save. We think back, we need to remember from, from where we came. Like David, when he sins, he thinks back even to his youth, his early days, the heart that has gone astray. We think of all the wrong we have done. I pray and certainly hope we know our guilt before you all too well. We're thankful, though, Lord, we don't have to live in that guilt. We don't live in sadness or fear or depression. We have great joy because that guilt has been lifted. It's only one way that this same Savior we read of and hear from 
that he came to live a perfect, righteous, sinless life, yet climb that cross to die in our place, to, to deal with our guilt and our shame. Every evil deed, sinful thought, he paid the guilt of it all before a holy father that we might be truly forgiven. And Lord, you promise now in Christ you remember our sins no more. We need to remember from time to time that we not lose heart, that we remember from where we came. We remember what was done for us. May we never forget. But live in light of this, this gift, the gift of salvation. Jesus came for sinners. If there are any here who are still righteous, I pray you break them and open their eyes. Show them there's no way but, but through Christ. You have to come low, humble, on your knees, crawling through this narrow gate, forsaking all self-righteous, all merit, all effort. We only contribute our sin. But, but open their eyes, humble them under your mighty hand that you might exalt them at the proper time. Show them Christ. We need him. Renew us in our love for others, our mercy toward fellow sinners. We not lose that heart, Lord, but in love, seek to reach them. Now, you've given us all a testimony. Here's what the Lord did for a great sinner such as I. And may we not be silent about that testimony, but let the world know there's only hope in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.